Will you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And these brothers have some Bibles in their hands. They're going to make their way to the back. Get their attention if you need a Bible. And they will get one of those to you. And it's already marked at the passage that we'll be considering in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Now, I mentioned earlier that our schedule for worship is normally 9.30. I didn't mention that it normally ends at 10.45. That's an hour and 15 minutes. We started today at 11. So do the math. And and here's why I'm, I'm telling you to do the math. Because in every church service I've been in, there is something sacred about noon. At noon, alarms go off, phones go off. Children, you can hear crying from the nursery. So we will hasten as quickly as we can, but we want to give sufficient attention to the passage we'll be looking at in just a bit in Philippians 2. Some of you know that before I began pastoring full-time in 2006, that I actually had a real job. I worked in an office setting for 20 years. And there was a, a woman in the office at which I worked at one time who would say, I'm sorry, or excuse me, on a regular basis, at times when most other people would never do so. For instance, if someone was pouring a cup of coffee, and she was standing behind waiting her turn, and the person turned around and made eye contact, she'd say, oh, I'm sorry, or excuse me. If she passed you in the hallway, and you were having a conversation with someone, as she went by, she would kind of duck her head down a little bit and say, excuse me. She did this enough that one especially gruff gal in the office one day told her, Cindy, if you say I'm sorry one more time, I'm going to strangle you. (laughs) To which she instinctively said, I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, Cindy had a soft voice and a kind demeanor, and she was regularly deferring to other people. Now, how would you describe someone like that? we'd probably be inclined to think of words like meek or humble, that those would fit Cindy's personality. We'd certainly not ever say she's self-centered. She's the very opposite of that, other-centered, even to a fault. Well, I read an article recently, the title of which asked the question, are the self-loathing also self-centered? And in it, the author, a professor at the City University of New York, says, Are the self-loathing people who feel an overwhelming sense of inadequacy and utter lack of worth actually self-centered? He says, the question was posed to me some time ago by a friend, and my first impulse was to proclaim, no, of course not. When I think of a self-centered person, I think of a narcissist, the epitome of self-love and the opposite of self-loathing. What's more, many of the behaviors of that are typical of self-loathing people, especially within a relationship, seem on the surface to be self-demeaning, aimed at lowering oneself and elevating one's partner. If anything, the self-loathing want to turn the focus away from them and toward other people whenever possible. And this may very well be how the self-loathing consider their own personality and behavior, he says. The self-loathing often think that everything they do is wrong and therefore feel the need to apologize for everything, regardless of its importance, even if it's not a mistake at all. They also feel that they're one mistake away from ruining their relationships. And that anxiety often makes them apologize all the more. 
And then he goes on to provide other characteristic behaviors, showing that they all have at their root, now hear this, a focus on what people think of me. That is, the person is overly self-conscious. Now notice, self-conscious. Not necessarily others conscious. And so the author concludes, there is a necessarily self-centered aspect to self-loathing. After all, it is about how we feel about ourselves, often in relation to other people, true. But deep down, it's still about us. Self-centeredness shows up in ways that we would not expect and therefore don't think about. Author Ed Welch told a story about himself that took place when he was in high school. He said that in his school, like most, I think, they had an annual awards assembly that took place in the school's huge auditorium. If you won an award, you had to come on stage in front of a couple thousand people. And Welch says that he was a shy teenager and he dreaded that possibility, which he did have to endure a few times in high school. He recalled one year he was up for an award and there was a decent chance he would actually get the award, though it was not guaranteed, and he was hoping, even praying, that he wouldn't win the award so that he didn't have to go up front. When they came to that award and they began recounting the accomplishments of the winner, it sounded just like him. And he was afraid they were going to announce his name, but alas, the name that was called was not his but one of his classmates. He felt this sense of relief that he didn't have to go up front. But then almost immediately his thinking changed, he says. Well, why did he get it? I deserved it more than he did. You see, we tend to think of the self-centered person the way the professor I quoted does, the narcissist. We all know at least one person who's always talking about himself or herself, turning every conversation to be about them. And if you don't know someone like that, then maybe you're that person. We don't think of ourselves as self-centered because if we have quiet, meek personalities, it seems to indicate otherwise. Or even if we don't have that kind of personality, we can point to the many things that we do for others, which obviously mean that we're not self-centered. I volunteer in the community, or I sacrificially work for the betterment of my family and my children. But if we're honest, it's not always about others, even in those instances. We take pride in the fact that we serve others. And we're certainly proud of our children when they do well, and we're embarrassed when they don't. If we're to be totally honest about ourselves, there's an element of self-centeredness, even selfishness, in all of us. And we acquire that tendency very early on because it comes to us naturally. Think about this. One of the first words a child learns after mama and dada is mine. And you don't have to teach a child to say mine. And you don't have to teach a child to use the powers at his or her disposal to get what they want. Hitting, yelling. Or you don't have to teach them to protest when they don't get what they want. Crying and fits of rage. Let me ask you, when you see a group picture that you're in, who do you look for first? And if you see a picture of yourself that you like, really, how many times do you have to put it on Instagram and and Facebook? Now, what does any of this have to do with why we're here on Easter? Well, the Bible connects the events of the first Holy Week 2,000 years ago, believe it or not, 
to our self-centeredness. In fact, if you'll take a look at verse number 3 of Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. That is, selfish ambition, ambition, putting what you want for yourself first. Do nothing out of putting what you want for yourself first, or do nothing out of vain conceit. That is, putting what you think of yourself first. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That is, put others first in your thinking, and in turn, put others first in what you do. And that passage in Philippians 2 then goes on to connect our tendency to look out for number one to what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. Verse 5 says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Jesus demonstrated a selfless mindset in what he did on the cross, which we commemorate on what we call Good Friday. And what he did when he rose from the grave on Sunday, which we celebrate today, Easter. And so I've titled the message, and if you look at the back of your program, if you still have your program, if you can find that, take that out and look on the back. And up at the top, I've titled the message, Good Friday, Great Sunday. And I encourage you to follow along as we look at this passage together. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us. Father, we thank you for this blessed day where we remember that the Lord Jesus is the Lord indeed of the living and the dead. and He is the Lord because he is alive and he was raised from the dead because you accepted what he did in his death. Help us to see that. Help us to emulate that. And help us to embrace that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I say in your outline, first of all, that Good Friday provides the example that we are to imitate. Good Friday provides the example that we are to imitate. Again, verse 5 of Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, being in very nature, God. Now that phrase, who being in very nature God, tells us that the one who was crucified was God who came as man. When Jesus was born, it was said that one of the titles by which Jesus would be known was the name Emmanuel. And here's what the Bible says about that. They will call him Emmanuel, and then it's interpreted for, translated for us in that very verse. It says, which means God with us. And the Bible is very clear that indeed the one who came to earth 2,000 years ago is indeed God. The Bible says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now notice, and the Word was God. So the question then is, who is this one that is called in the Bible the Word? Well, the passage goes on to say this, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word was God and the Word became flesh. That is, the Word became man, the Word became humanity. And that's why verse 6 says, he was in very nature God, but he was willing to become man. And so he came to earth in Bethlehem on that first Christmas. He was willing to do so because of how he viewed himself. Verse 6, again, the last part of verse 6. 
He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So Good Friday and the fact that Jesus came to die on our behalf gives us the example that we're to imitate, and we are to imitate his attitude, I say, in your outline. We are to imitate Jesus' attitude. Jesus did not selfishly assert his rights. And as God, indeed, he has all rights. We, on the other hand, are people who demand our rights and demand to get our due. Rarely will we forego what we're entitled to, and often we'll lay claim to things we're not entitled to. Jesus did not selfishly assert his rights, and his followers are not to do so either. It is said in Scripture of one of Jesus' first followers, the great apostle Paul. He recounts a number of things that he could have done and he was entitled to, but then he says several times in 1 Corinthians 9, I have not used any of these rights. Now Jesus, who's God, God having come as man, had every right to assert his privileges, but his mindset was centered on the needs of others. And we are by nature self-centered. And even when we are doing things for others, there is always a tinge of self, selfishness and self-centeredness. Good Friday is the example that we imitate, and we imitate Jesus' attitude, but I say in your outline as well, we're to imitate Jesus' actions. His attitude, but also his actions. Verse 7 says this, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, this is what Jesus did then, that we are to emulate, imitate in his actions. He condescended to others, and we are to condescend for others, I say in your outline. Now, in what way did Jesus condescend? Well, he's God. He's God from all eternity. And God deigned to come to earth as man and to take on the nature of a servant. Here's what the Bible says about that. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus left the splendor of heaven. Jesus left his father's house, and he came to our sin-cursed house. And here's what Jesus said of himself on his earthly sojourn. Foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The God who made it all, the God who owned it all, came to earth, condescending for us. And what did he leave? At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the night before he died, Jesus prayed a prayer to the Father. The Lord's Prayer, really, not the Lord's Prayer that we think of, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was a prayer Jesus gave for us to pray. In John chapter 17, there is the Lord's Prayer. There's the prayer that Jesus actually prayed. And here's what he says the night before he was crucified. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's what he had. But he condescended, stooped down, came to earth on our behalf. And he came to earth, says verse 7, taking the very nature of a servant. The word that's translated servants, a Greek word doulos. It's sometimes translated slave. Taking the very nature of a slave. That's why Jesus said of himself, I am among you as one who, 
as one who serves. So in our relationships, we imitate Jesus' actions. We're to imitate those in being willing to come to where the need is, and then we meet the need no matter we meet the need no matter the cost to us. Now that's why I say secondly that we are to not only condescend for others, we are to sacrifice for others in following Jesus' example. Now let me just ask you in your relationships. Are you willing to do what's necessary for someone else no matter the cost to you? And yet that's what Jesus calls his followers to do because our master did it first. And in verse number 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now when it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, you could, you could write in there, instead of obedient to death, obedient all the way to death. Because his entire life, his entire 33 years on earth, were an act of obedience before the Father. His very coming to earth was an act of obedience. And then all of the things that he went through, he perfectly obeyed the Father. And in all of the things he suffered, he was obeying the Father all on the way to what he knew he had come to do, and that was to die for others. And so he obeyed all the way to death. That's why the Bible says this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That is, in his experience, not that Jesus didn't know, as God, he knew everything. So it's not that he had to learn that way. But Jesus learned in his experience obedience from obeying God through the through the travails of what God the Father had called him to do, and he did that all the way up to the point of death. Difficult though it was. And we see that difficult in the difficulty and the agony as Jesus prays to the Father in the garden the night before he dies, saying famously, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was obedient all of his life, all the way to death, the purpose for which he came, and that death was on a cross by crucifixion. It was so cruel and inhuman that it was forbidden for citizens of the Roman Empire to be crucified. And because of the barbaric nature of crucifixion, that's why verse 8 ends with, not only did he obey all the way to death, but he obeyed all the way to this particular death, even death on a cross. God the Son, Jesus, was willing because this is what I needed. I needed someone to pay the penalty for my sin. Because he didn't regard his position, but regarded what I needed, then Jesus did for me what I needed. He was willing because it's what I needed. He was willing because it's what you needed. And so he put us above his own interests. Now this is the example that we are to imitate, the Bible says. And so I ask you, in our relationships, instead of demanding selfishly what I need from you, are you in relationships now where you're doing that very thing? If he doesn't straighten out his act, if he doesn't get it together and start acting the way I need for him to act, 
Or if she doesn't, then there are going to be consequences. But instead of demanding selfishly what I need from you, we're to ask selflessly, what can I do for you? And in Jesus doing that, he not only provided an example of selflessness that we're to follow, but he took care of the very reason that we're selfish in the first place. The reason, friends, that we're naturally self-centered is the S-word, sin. We're not naturally others-centered, and more important, we are not naturally God-centered. And even the good things we do, we do not do for the right reason, and that is the praise and the glory of God. And that's why the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the standard, which is the glory of God. By making ourselves first, We have displaced the one who's supposed to be first. And only because we put ourselves first do we then break the commands that God gave. You shall have no other gods before me. Only because we put ourselves first do we break the other commands of stealing and lying and others. Good Friday and Easter are about fixing that problem and putting First things first. No, actually, the first one first. So the Bible says this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good Friday provides the example that we are to imitate. And now secondly in your outline. Easter provides the exalted one that we are to worship. The exalted one that we are to worship. Notice verse 9 of Philippians 2 starts this way. Therefore, this obedience that Jesus followed throughout his entire life, his very coming was an act of obedience. And then throughout his life, from moment one, he was obeying God the Father, even to obedience to death on a cross. And therefore, now verse 9, that is... Because of the fact that he was obedient in all he did and throughout his life, Jesus has now succeeded where everybody else failed. And therefore, because of that obedience, God has exalted him. He succeeded where none of us has, and because of that, he's the exalted one. Now, between verses 8 and 9, The end of verse 8 where he says he was obedient even to death on a cross. And then verse 9 says, therefore, God has exalted him. Between those two verses, there is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He died on the cross but was raised on the first day of the week, Sunday. And that was because God the Father was pleased with his obedience all the way to the cross. And the Father showed that approval by raising him and exalting him to receive all worship. I say in your outline that Easter provides us the exalted one that we're to worship. And we are to worship him for three reasons. First, because of where he is. Because of where he is. Verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus is on a throne now at the right hand of God the Father. A position of royal kingly privilege signifying his exalted position over his world. And he will come again 
And he will establish his kingdom where he, Jesus, will reign. We are to worship him because of where he is. He is at the right hand of the Father. And secondly, in your outline, we're to worship him because of who he is. Where he is, but who he is. Verse 9 again. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now when verse 10 says, at the name of Jesus, it's not that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess at those five letters, Jesus, that name. It's not that name. You see, because this verse is saying that after his resurrection, God exalted him and then gave him this name that is above every name. Well, he already had the name Jesus. He got that from moment one. So the name at which people are to bow it is, it is not Jesus. In fact, you could translate that verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, as at the name that belongs to Jesus, every knee will bow. So what is that name? Verse 11 tells us, it's Lord. Jesus is Lord. The name Lord means master, one with ultimate authority. It's a title of majesty, of honor, and authority. One commentator has said, whoever is Lord is over everyone else. He has absolute supremacy and the right to be obeyed as divine master. Now, this book that we're looking at in the Bible, Philippians, it's so-called because it was a letter that was written to Christians in the church at a city called Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman colony. The Bible tells us Philippi was a Roman colony and a leading city of Macedonia. Now, here's why I point that out to you. The people to whom this was first written are being told that Jesus is Lord. And in fact, they were this Roman colony, and it was important for them to understand who their real Lord was and where their citizenship really was. And so in the next chapter, chapter 3 and verse 20, chapter 3 and verse 20 in this book, it says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, why? Because Rome and the empire had someone else laying claim to the title Lord. It was Caesar. And this is saying that Jesus, not the Roman emperor, is the sovereign ruler over the world. Do you hear that, friends? Jesus is the Lord and ruler over the world. Not Putin. Not Obama. Not Clinton, not Bush, not a Republican, not a Democrat. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sovereign over his world. And the one who became a slave, a servant for us, has now been exalted as Lord. But the name is, yes, indeed, Lord. But that name, Lord, is tied in Scripture to the personal name of God himself. Because in verses 10 and 11, when it says, every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge, when it says that, that's actually a quotation from the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. And in one of the books in the first part of your Bible, Isaiah, the Bible says this, There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And then it goes on to say, 
In the next verse, before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear allegiance. And this is being quoted and applied to Jesus now. That Jesus is this God to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And then the chapters just prior to that one in Isaiah, it's all about the personal name of the true and living God. Isaiah 41 says, I am the Lord your God. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. And then Isaiah 43, I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, apart from me, there is no God. I am the Lord, over and over. And that name, Lord, is the name some of you have heard before in Hebrew, Yahweh. In applying what Isaiah said of God and Yahweh to Jesus, the New Testament is saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the true and living God. Now, when the Jews would read their Hebrew Bible, what we know is the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, and they would see that name Yahweh, it was so holy to them that they wouldn't actually say Yahweh. They would substitute another name, sometimes another word for title for Lord Adonai. But there's a second one that sometimes that they, they would substitute for Yahweh, and it was this, Hashem. And Hashem means the name. At the name of Jesus, the Lord, Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Thirdly, I say in your outline and lastly, we are to worship him because of where he is and because of who he is. But then we will worship him because of what he designed. We will worship him. Verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And I want you to notice, friends, it says, and under the earth. And under the earth. That is, there is a time coming when every creature made by God, every one made in his image, willingly or not, some from under the earth through clenched teeth will have to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. And why? Because that's what he has designed. He made this world so that it would be to his glory. And that's why verse 11 ends, to the glory of God, the Father. You say, wow, that is cosmic, eternal, otherworldly kind of stuff. But you know, it's intended to be relevant to your school cafeteria and your cubicle at work and your living room at home. Because in all of that that Jesus did, he provided us an example of how we are now to behave in our relationships. And I say in the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, Good Friday shows us how to live selflessly. Shows us how to live. And Easter shows us for whom to live. And that's why the Bible says this. He died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so on this Easter, I ask you, friend, for whom are you living? There is one Lord, one God, one master, and he is Jesus. And he calls you on this Easter to bow yourself before him. 
bow yourself before him now voluntarily. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Oh, dear friend, do that now, voluntarily. And he will rescue you. He will save you. He will change you from self-centered to from selfish to the kind of attitude and actions that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do I do now? Realize that you're a sinner. And your sin and my sin shows up in our self-centeredness in its various ways. But recognize Jesus died for that sin. He paid the penalty that belonged to you and to me. Repent. Bow before him as your Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you now. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. When we do, you have opportunity to bow your head and your heart before the Lord of the universe. And to acknowledge your sin. And to ask him to be your Lord. Lord, I give you my life. I'm going to follow you. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. And I believe you're the Lord. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for what this special Lord's Day represents. The raising of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead so that he is alive. He is with us. He is watching us. He is coming again. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit has moved upon hearts this morning to move them to see that Easter is not just something that we celebrate once each year as a tradition, as a custom, but rather Easter represents the fact that you are the Lord of the living of the dead and the dead every moment of every day, that this world and we were made for your glory, that you designed it for that, and you are reclaiming your world for that, and you are restoring people to what they were made to be, one person at a time through the good news of the gospel message. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to draw some out of the world into yourself in this sacred moment. Move upon their hearts so that they see that they indeed, like me, like all of us, are sinners, and that the only payment for their sin is the one that God the Son gave on the cross for them that they would bow their lives before you and begin following you to the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of God the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.